right. Uh, welcome, friends. It's good to uh, hear you back again. Uh, thank you for those who commented and subscribed. We really appreciate it. Please feel free to always give us feedback. We love to uh, hear what's going on in your world. This is In Living Matrix. I'm Jonathan. This is Rich. Say hi, Rich. Hey, everybody. Thanks for the help, participation. I uh, would love some ideas, feedback, anything that helps kind of uh, us make it a better freaking podcast. What do you Absolutely. say? Absolutely. Yeah. I love it. Um, so today is, just to set this up a little bit, today is going to be a really fun experience. Um, Rich and I are going to use the next two episodes to kind of download us, who are the main characters in this Living in the Matrix. Um, and uh, so today, Rich has been volunteered. I actually volunteered him. Voluntold. <laughs> And uh, the goal is just to give you an opportunity to know us as hosts, who we are, a little bit of our background, and hopefully this will stir up a lot of questions from our listeners to kind of get to know us and uh, go from here. So, Rich, why don't we just start with, and, and as we talked about this, the real goal is to kind of give a perspective of your journey up until now. And uh, so why don't you kind of give us little bit of an overview and uh, and dive in. Wow. Yeah, where do I begin, right? So, I mean, the thing that I'm, I was thinking about as I was going to dive into this a little bit is I'm going to go into detail on, you know, my family journey, um, my kind of my career journey, faith journey. But one of the things I was thinking about as we've done this more and more is kind of why are you doing what you're doing? What's motivating you to get up every day and to do what you do? And so um, I was thinking about, I am a lifelong learner. Um, I love uh, to be curious about things, right? And I think you are too. And that's probably what brought us together. Yeah. But uh, I am curious about things like, you know, how, how to, um, you know, cook well, right? I love good food, good wine. If you look at my Instagram, you'll, you'll see mostly travel and cooking and, and celebration kind of things. I love hospitality. I love entertaining friends, right? I tend to do a great job in cooking and I love the light that kind of goes on. In terms of like other creative ideas, I'm exploring a lot of biohacking things now, which means like, how do I actually help the body and the mind do better, right? So we talk about things like, um, intermittent fasting, we talk about things like ice baths, and there's a variety of other things that I'm curious about, including we talk about psychedelics, we talk about meditation and a variety of other things. So I'm curious about that. That's what motivates me from that standpoint. And lastly, you know, uh, as we've gone into the matrix about consciousness, right? How do we have um, a framework in our mind and in our heart where we can be aligned with the cosmos, if you would, and our fellow man and trying to bring better things to the world, right? How do we try to shift? There's a lot of divisiveness going on, right? It's easy to get distracted, to get depressed. Um, and we can't afford that, right? We have to have a, a mind-heart balance with relationships with our creator, I think, in order to uh, help get through and break through, um, you know, the travails of the world. So that's kind of it in, in, in an overview right there. That That's really good because... Um... Those are really the big picture things that we've talked about. Uh, so, but let me ask you this, where did you begin? Where did I begin in terms of- uh, No, where did you begin? There's this guy called Rich. Where did he begin? Where'd you grow up? Yeah, okay, that's great, for sure. No, I mean, um, I, was, I was conceived in Fiji, believe it or not. 
Um, I love it. It's not on my LinkedIn profile. LinkedIn, um, you know, you're, you're asked to get up in front of the new hires and everybody says, hey, you've got this LinkedIn profile. What's something that's not on your LinkedIn profile that you might want to know? So that's a little bit too much information for some people. So um, let's just say that, uh, you know, I was born in, in Southern California. I've lived here most of my life, spent a few years in Fiji um, and, and um, spent 15 Wait, you were years born in Fiji? I didn't know that. I, I was conceived in Fiji, I mean, born conceived, in Anaheim. Born yes. Born in Anaheim, but you lived there? Yeah. So, um, well, obviously my, my dad um, met- I did not mom. know this about you. He's a Peace Corps. He was a Peace Corps volunteer. Uh, he was the first American set of Americans in um, Fiji for the Peace Corps. And my mom, um, also Caucasian, um, she's not Fijian native, but she's English from, you know, New Zealand, actually, but English heritage. And she was a hair cutter. And uh, I guess my mom and dad hit it off. And so they got married um, in 1969. That's when I was conceived because I was born in 1970. Right. So yeah. um, came to the States, um, lived in Southern California most of my life. So I was raised uh, mostly in Ventura, which is a great beach town. Um, that's just between Santa Barbara and LA for those people that don't know where Ventura is. Um, yeah. And th that's where I got my start, right. Went to St. Bonaventure, had a Catholic upbringing in terms of that. Um, and hey, what was your first impression of God? My first impression of God was probably, uh, is it like, I'm just going to Catholic school. Oh yeah, I was. I went to um, up, up in King City. I was up. I lived in King City for a couple of years, believe it or not. So that's a little bit of a detractor, just south of uh, Salinas. So I remember my first communion. I think and and my confession. Right, my first uh, confession in the Catholic faith. You've got seven sacraments, and the first few of them are actually involuntary. Baptism, which I don't remember because I was just an infant. Right. Um, then you have, I believe, your uh, first communion. Then you do your uh, reconciliation, right, which is that piece, and then. When you're about 13, you can get confirmed. And that's um, typically kind of, that's your last deal where it's kind of indoctrinated in you, but you can actually make the choice. It says like, I'm not ready to receive the Holy Spirit. That's right. not me yet. And so I moved on. So that was my um, upbringing. First point of God was probably in, in church, you know, doing again, communion or something like that. Or, or How or, did you feel about going through all that stuff? Because I didn't grow up Catholic. I grew up uh, Baptist. I loved it. I, 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 I had no really? problem going to church and just being a good, obedient kid. I wasn't an altar boy, if you would, but um, spent, you know, we did we did CCD, right? Um, I went to a Catholic high school and I really enjoyed studying um, that. I, I got great grades. I loved history. I loved, you know, talking about the Old and the New Testaments and theology and stuff like that. So I kind of uh, embraced it. Wait, you were interested in theology even back then? Yeah, I was actually. Oh, wow. um, I just, I had Dennis Johnson for one of my teachers and, you know, loved the history of the Israelites and, 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 and David and the Babylonians and the exile. And we talked all about that stuff. That's and obviously not the basketball player. <laughs> no, that's correct. Okay. Who is yeah. Dennis Johnson? He was my, he was my, uh, he was my history teacher at St. Bonaventure. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, were you athletic? Uh, no, I uh, worked a little cross country. Um, I broke okay, my arm, so I couldn't do much in cross country. And then I uh, basically wanted to get in shape because I was, you know, full of hormones, but not really growing my body out. So I did join the football team, um, you know, my senior year and didn't play much, um, but uh, gained 15 pounds of pure muscle. And that was a, a good start for me to get into that category. Yeah. Nice. Because you're really sick. Because as we started, the things that you are interested in is business consciousness and um biohacking right now 
That's sort of where we're at right now. When did, when did you think biohacking started? Was it young or was it late? No, the biohacking's only been recent, right? Uh, watching Dave Asprey, um, it helps to be on Instagram a lot because you're constantly getting um, bombarded with all kinds of ideas. The algorithm kind of works really well, but the idea of intermittent fasting, um, taking a lot of supplements that help you with, you know, magnesium, you know, because we don't have a lot of things. If you actually look at the history of where our planet and our food has come from, the, the kind of food that we ate 60, 80 years ago was so much better, so much more nutrient dense. And we've lost a lot of that, right? So I, I figured well, out- Everything that- now is filled with uh, high fructose corn syrup. Of you course. Know, and, or any kind of other derivative of that, because that's a filler. Absolutely. A filler keeps you working well. Because I, I don't want to keep going off on that tangent, because that would be an easy one to go off on. Uh, but when you were a kid, which do you think you gravitated more towards, theology or business? I don't think it was business when I was a kid. Um, you know, I was considered a pretty good student, in, you know, in, in, in school and class. I didn't really think about business until I was going to college at uh, Long Beach State, right? So um, I thought about, you know, there's a lot of, I, I had this kind of one-two combination of international business with Japanese. I took a couple of years of Japanese. Oh, nice. And I thought that could be a, a good angle. You know, in the 80s, Japanese were buying up real estate everywhere. They bought the Bel Air, you know, country club, and they were making a lot of inroads their their new cars were doing really really well so i thought that might be a good angle so going back to my early days i don't even know if i thought too much about theology i just like reading a lot i read a lot of books back then lost a lot of fiction like the hardy boys and and stuff and um and the classics and and of course what you had to go through in high school um but i suppose you know i always had a good gr- grounding in in, in religious studies, right? Because of Bonaventure and, 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 you know, being a good Catholic boy. In fact, when I graduated high school, I even came back or graduated college. I came back and I was on the, what's called the parish pastoral council, which is you've got the pastor and you've got the lay, and then you've got a group of people that kind of goes in between them because unlike evangelical bodies where the body actually has the power, you know, in a, in a apostolic kind of situation, like Episcopal church or like the Catholic church, it's top down, right? Mm-hmm. You know, that pastor has supreme control. The, the people in the in the pews don't really have a say in anything, right? So how do you think that growing up affected your way of thinking? Oh, this is, um, that's amazing pivoted question. So one of the things I kept thinking about is why is it that when I even pivoted away from Catholicism into more of a Lutheran um, state and then even to an evangelical state, why did I not embrace some of the kinds of theology? So you guys, you might remember the books Left Behind series. Remember the Left Behind series? Oh, yeah. Huge bestsellers. It was all about the rapture. And how about, it was a one lens of looking at scripture to say, Jesus is going to come down out of the sky. Um, he's going to take all the good Christians up with them, lift them up, you know, into the air. And they're going to go be with God and the people that aren't believers are going to be left behind and they're going to have to go through this great tribulation, right? right. And I started reading the first couple of books and I just wasn't bought off on it. And I said, there's got to be different ways. Of, How old were you? Uh, probably mid-20s. I okay. think it's when it came out, right? 2006, yes. 2004, 2002, maybe something like that, early 20s. And I, I remember hearing from somebody who said, you know... Um, and I might be wrong when the books came out, but somebody said, you know, that's not the only way of looking at the end times, right? I'm like, I didn't know that. Okay, so, let me ask you a question about that. And this yeah. is a small derivative. 
did you ever feel afraid of being left behind? Because being left behind is an evangelical tradition. It is. It's like, don't get left behind. Yeah, I, I never did because I thought okay. it was it was it was it was not. A, so the interesting thing about it is this is what helped me, I think, move slowly away from a, a pure literal interpretation of scripture, because one of the things they claim is we look at it literally. And the real strangeness about that is they're not looking at the Bible literally. They're actually picking cherry picking parts that they like. I mean, they think we're left behind because the church at Philadelphia said they're not going to go through any pain. They did a great job. They're going to take one church of all seven, you know, in the book of Revelation, and they're going to say, oh, that's us, right? They look at a couple passages when they're not realizing that there is a final judgment. There isn't all that discourse that talks about different things. And so I think it helped me frame my, maybe because the rooted Catholic isn't, Catholicism is not totally literal either. They, they believe in like looking at a, a zero as being a big number. So when you look at like 144,000 people saved, or you look at a thousand year reign, you can find thousands all over the Bible. The cattle on a thousand hills is in, you know, the Old Testament. That right. doesn't mean God owns the cattle on 1,000 hills. It means a ton. He owns all the cattle, right? And a thousand years of that heavenly reign is just a really, really long period of time. Mm -hmm. And Jesus says, do not forgive your brother seven times, but 70 times seven. That doesn't mean 490 it means as many as it takes, right? And so I think my Catholic upbringing helped me move in a direction that says, hey, let's look at the context. Let's look at the, um, you know, I, I still love the Bible and I'm inspired by it. It's, and it's, it's a holy book, but there's just ways of looking at it that, um, that, that that particular discipline of eschatology wasn't doing it justice to all of the framework. When did it start becoming important? Kind of when did you recognize that it started being something you thought about a lot? Yeah, I, I suppose when the kids started growing up, right, and you start to realize that you've got kids that you need to take care of and think about, right? And um, I, I think maybe that's when it became more important in terms of like... You, I think that's a huge driver for a yeah, lot of Yeah, it's people. not just you anymore. It's not just your wife. It's it's your kids and your and you think about their future and you think about what's going to happen and you want to be with them. Right. And so there's a lot of things that um, I, I looked at in that regard, I suppose. Okay. So I don't want to keep jumping ahead to the future, but when, uh, when did business start coming into play? You said in college. Yeah. I'd say that um, my, my, I spent one year at Ventura college, which was kind of a waste. I took a chemistry class, a couple English classes and Aikido. <laughs> So I studied a little martial arts. Um, did you know I, what you wanted to do when you graduated high school? No, I no? didn't. No. Uh, what's really funny also is that I, you think business, I, I, I chose business because I thought that's where the money was. I didn't do it because of my heart, right? If I'd gone back, if I'd gone back to me at 21 or 22, or actually, I'm sorry, 19, whatever it was, then I went, when I went to Long Beach State and where I met my bride, Lisa, um, I think I might've done something differently. I, I didn't, you know, only in retrospect, when I'm meeting lots of really cool people at ADP and LinkedIn, do I realize that all these people had different majors, right? One of my good sales friends at, you know, at LinkedIn had an engineering degree from UC Davis, right? And he was a great salesperson, right? Which is kind of rare. You typically would go in an engineering field. But um, what I'm getting at is, is that I, I chose business out of, you know, the kind of extant world. Oh, do business to make a lot of money as opposed to what really are you good at? What, what's driving you, right? What's, where's your heart? I never really thought about it that way. Well, I think we know that now, you know, back in the eighties when we were going through, you know, we were going through college, 
when did you start college? I, I started 85, 89. So I'm four years ahead of you. Back then it was, in other words, you climbed the ladder to create the American dream. Yep. It was this idea, you know, you were in LA, I was in Northern California and it, but they were very similar uh, because commerce was huge in LA and where, I mean, I was in the center of Silicon Valley and that way of living was go make money. Yep. That was really, and did you feel that? Yeah. No, I mean, I mean, obviously the idea of getting a job immediately after college was, was top of mind. You know, um, when I did graduate, I was lucky enough. Uh, I was doing actually working for a fraternity brother, trying to sell. Like just so our listeners know, what house were you in? Sigma Chi. Okay, White Cross. Exactly. <laughs> you, you'll, you'll appreciate Sigma Chi's and Delta Gammas got really long. In fact, the rap, there's a rap song that that said "F the Sigma Chi, F the Delta Gamma, Delta De, De, Delta Gamma." Yeah. So. Um, oh yes, know, Sigma Chi's and DGs were. Yeah, together. So I married a DG. So I was anchor man, which means that I spent a lot of time over at that house doing a lot of cleaning and did stuff. You and pin her? What's that? Did you pin her? I did. We yes. I pinned Lisa at um at uh, uh, at a formal that we had out in Palm Springs. Yeah, it was an so awesome. My cousin day. was telling me at USC. So I didn't get so over the listeners. I didn't go to USC, but I lived at USC for a year and a half with my cousin. So that's why I referenced this. There was a sort of an unwritten rule at USC that if you were with her longer than three years, you, uh, you had to pin, like they, they were kind of saying, don't, you know, don't be an ass. You, you need to. And if you didn't, they would strap you to a bed naked and deliver you to the girl's house naked. So you could pin her. Oh my gosh. I never that? That. No, that's nuts. That's and, and, and I, I know of one true story. They did it to my cousin did it in his fraternity. He was a uh, SAE. They actually did that. And that so sounds they, like something an SAE would do. Yes. That's exactly something an SAE. Let me tell you what SAEs did to, to one of my brothers at uh, Long Beach State. They got him so drunk, they hogtied him and dropped him off naked in front of the Delta Gamma house. Poor guy. That's what SEs do. And dude, with the SEs um, had a chapter advisor come in to make sure they were being stupid. And this is a regional guy. Yeah. They put him in one of the rooms to sleep and they threw firecrackers underneath the door in the middle of the night to their own person who was supposed to be giving them the stamp of approval or not. So that's, yeah, you, you hear the term same assholes everywhere. I'm sorry. I've got a couple of SE friends that I like and, and I appreciate and I love, but um, that's where the term comes from, man. SAE, same assholes everywhere. <laughs> I have never heard that. Oh, you I, never heard that? Oh, yeah. My dad, my stepfather was an SE too. So I had a little bit in my family. Yeah. But I've never heard that one. Same assholes everywhere. There you go. Okay. Yeah. That's funny. Um, so you, gra- you went to Long Beach, mm-hmm. start there. You went to Long Beach and you graduated in business. What finance? Business marketing. Oh, business marketing. Yep. What was your first job? Out of uh, out of college, yeah, yeah. So did I worked you go for- right out and get your first job, or did you go work? Yeah. At so um, what was really cool was um, I was going back to this uh, fraternity brother I was working with, where we were trying to sell like um, 
tickets to a senior conference that would get together. There's RVs and we we're trying to be a marketing promotional thing. And so I was actually cold calling and actually going through yellow pages. And so when the recruiter at ADP, my first job calls, I get ringed through the receptionist. Oh yeah. One second. He's, he, he's on the other line. So I'm in this room and I'm, I must've looked like, what's this guy, you know, he's in a business environment. I'll, I'll connect you. And I talked about cold calling and all these other things. And she's like, Oh, you're great. You know? And it was awesome. Jonathan is that, um, on my resume, I put my permanent address on there instead of my, um, you know, my temporary address, which was in Long Beach, right? I put my Ventura address and she goes, I, you're not going to believe this, but we actually have an opening in the Oxnard office. Would you be interested in that? I'm like, ding, 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 ding. This is literally just 10 minutes away from my, my hometown. So I'm thinking I could go take a job in my own backyard, live with my folks for a bit while I'm courting my future mm -hmm. wife save a lot of money and get my, um, you know, cut my teeth, you know, and, and get my uh, feet wet on, on the ADP bandwagon. So that's what happened. What did you think of ADP? My sister worked at ADP. She loved it. One of my um, most uh, uh, compelling, exciting, uh, foundational um, frameworks. I was there for almost 15 years, uh, spent a lot of time, you know, crushing the number working in God's country at Santa Barbara for a territory for heaven's sake, right up and down the central coast, um, enjoying just beautiful drives home, uh, pounding pavement, but doing really, really well, made 10 presidents clubs, got to take my wife to, to, to um, Ireland, to Monaco, to Aruba, to Vail, Colorado, to London, Paris, right? All these Hawaii a couple of times. So it was some really cool times. We would always um, get our presence club by the end of the fiscal year, which ended June 30th. And then we would get these little books and we'd all plan out our little itineraries. And it was just kind of like that vision casting, right? You get excited. And then next thing you know, you're in August and you're off flying around someplace. So it was an amazing time. So for those who don't know, explain to people what president's club is and what it's like. Because yeah. it's pretty freaking awesome. It is. And it really depends on the organization. Some some organizations um, like LinkedIn didn't have as, as, as opulent. They had like two or three nights, whereas ADP would have four or five nights, right? So President's Club is really above and beyond. So everybody tries to make their number. And mm -hmm. let's say it's a million bucks, you make your number. But then there are people who go above and beyond. And so they're in the top um, tier, right? So all these people are blowing out their number 120, 130%, 140% of plan. There's also another um, level called uh, at, at major accounts at ADP called Falcon. And then there's board of directors where you actually are like in the top 1%. So I got Falcon a few times as well. But bottom line is, is you're rewarded for working your butt off. You're given this special trip that's like a $4,500 tax fringeable, you know, what do you call it? A tax, it's not tax deductible, but it's a taxable fringe benefit. Mm -hmm. And you get to have memorable occasions with your colleagues and your spouse. And, um, you know, we talk, we took Ari who was only seven months old once um, when we went to our trip to Ari is your son. Uh, Ariana is, is our youngest. She's 18 now, but we took her to London and uh, Westminster man Westminster Abbey. We, we went to Paris. We went to Sacre Coeur, the church up in the, um, in the neighborhood up there that John Wick Forrest filmed at. So um, really, wow. really great experiences. Yeah. So um, yeah, it was some of the best uh, times and good foundational sales knowledge, right? During that time, what did you, because you and I talk business all the time and ideas and sales Back. and organization. Yeah, I, yep. What did you learn during ADP? 
What did you really learn during that time? Yeah, so I learned how to be consistent with um, outreach, right? So when you're in sales, you need to just... Um, no, but what did you learn about yourself? Oh, I learned what it means to be a team player. I, I think what it, I learned what it means to um, have good relationships with people who might not know you. I learned how to overcome failure and 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 fear. Right, uh, and two thousand and three was a really challenging year uh, for the economy. Mm-hmm. And it was my first time I hadn't made my number. That was a real big, um, frustrating time. And I came back the next year out of the gates and just crushed it, right? And what's great about ADP is they always allowed that, right? They didn't fire you, unlike Oracle, if you sucked ass a couple quarters, right? So I learned um, value of team and, 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 and great communication with internal partners, again, um, overcoming failure and just, you know, how, how to, um, you know, get out there and just give it your all. Okay, so when you didn't make quarter, what was your conversation with God? Gosh, 2003, when I didn't make my number, uh, I don't remember about that conversation with God back then. I, I, I probably had a lot of fear and trepidation. The good news is a lot of us suffered that year. It was, uh, it was a bloodbath. So here's a perfect Collective. example. Yeah. In 1999, um, I didn't make my, my Falcon, um, which was um, top presence club tier. There was 130 people on stage. And in 2002, when I made my first Falcon, there was 31 people on stage. Think about that for a difference, right? 1999 versus 2002. So we were, we're still in a recession. I just happened to have a really good year. It wasn't a recession. It was just a bad couple of years of economy. And um, I think what I, what I realized was I looked around and I saw a lot of people that were in my boat. They also did a really weird thing with, um, with how they, they shifted our, 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 our tactics, right? I used to be a pure hunter with a couple of clients, and then I became... Um, more of a client focused rep and they kind of shifted the territories and I think it threw everybody off. And so that was kind of like a, a reset year. And then back 2004, five, six, and seven were all great years as well. Anyway, no, not a really strong conversation with God, but just a realization that there's nothing to be worried about that. Uh, it was a one-off kind of a deal. Let's transition a little bit. Cause as you've worked in your career, you haven't always because what I want to explore here is your conversation with God as you developed your career. Because mm-hmm. over, you know, you and I have had several really deep conversations around career when things haven't been. I mean, I I literally have been fired three times during our conversations. You know, it's like, it, yeah, what what were the downtimes like? And what was your conversation with God during that? Because you've ex- you've experienced, you and I have talked about this, you have experienced some exceptional organizational teams where you're thriving extendedly. What happens when that stops? That's a, that's a very big difference organizationally. Yeah. No, I do remember spending a lot of time on my knees. You know, um, I would say in between... Um, I would say between 2019, 20, even 2018, 2017, and, you know, more recently, because what ends up happening, and this is a conversation I've had with a lot of colleagues, you look at those glory days, right? I, I spent eight great years at LinkedIn, which can't be underestimated either, right? Had great culture, great, um, great product, great team, and then 15 years at ADP. And you think that's the way it's going to be like, right? I'm going to do my next gig, and it's going to be another four or five or six years, right? Mm-hmm. 
because you know, when you when you told two people that you worked you know for three companies in in the in the course of call it um, you know 24 25 years that seems pretty impressive right but over the last few years it's been a bunch of change right I, my new current vice president of North America used to work for WeWork he's been laid off two or three times and now what the standard is for all the guys my age in in their um, early like late 40s or early 50s is like oh my gosh. You can't find an organization where you've got that same kind of solid culture that gives you a great runway. So I did spend a lot of time just asking God, like, what do I need to do here? How, how do I get better? How do I um, support my family? Right. There are some real kind of trepidatious times there. And um, God always comes through. And I, and I, one of the things I always found about God is that when I worked for ADP, I moved up. I didn't tell you this, the last two years of ADP, I moved my family up to, um, to Sacramento. Mm -hmm. That's where I got a chance to meet you. That's where we met. Yeah. And, um, I, I had a great first year as a manager and then I struggled in 2008 to 2009. And you, we all know this, right? Because the recession hit, right? Mm -hmm. 2006, the housing bubble burst, 2000, I'm sorry, 2008 and 2009 were just terrible years. My, my team totally left. I was left hanging about carrying, you know, carrying nothing. And so I moved on to a different role. And I realized that, that role, because I was a manager, allowed me to move into that role. And because that second role, which was at a software company that nobody knew of, we provided con we provided secure uh, software to contract security companies that helped them, you know, run their business. Because that company had no brand, I had to leverage LinkedIn like no other and be really good at my own personal brand, and including leveraging LinkedIn. That helped me get into LinkedIn. So when you look back and you watch the pain and the suffering and where you end up, it's so nice to see that in the rearview mirror. You could connect the dots. The problem is, is that we don't have that foresight, right? I'm thinking this is an area we can explore in, in you know, doctor, talking about Dr. Joe and, and manifesting certain things and how... You know, there, there's a great quote um, by a guy I saw on Twitter today. It says the the past, like the present is more indicative of the past, right? Meaning like the, the, the present is actually, right yeah. yes, the present is actually more indicative of reality than, than the past, right? So it was a great quote. And it's that, a fruit of the past. That's right. That's right. So all that to say, um, on, on, on hands and knees, uh, lots of prayer, lots of, of that going on. And, and at the same time, what's really interesting is I also, this is when I've also been farthest away from an actual steady ongoing church relationship, right? So Lisa and I, when we were all, all okay, in- Okay, let me stop you there real quick. I'm going on a tangent, yeah. No, 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 it's not a tangent. I don't want, I don't want to pause this. Tell me about Lisa. Well, I'm, I'm, this is an interesting, this is not a tangent. This is actually foundational, right? So, yeah. Uh, Here's what I want to do. I want to make sure we cover one of the most important parts of your life, which is your family. Yeah. How did you meet Lisa? Yeah. So um, we were at Long Beach together and um, obviously in the Greek scene, which is, you know, Sigma Chi and you've got a lot of different events and stuff like that. Um, I had just bounced around the Delta Gamma house a lot, right? Not a lot of slutty stuff, but just kind of kissing here and there and just hanging around the girls and just enjoying that. And one day, um, my good buddy, Rob, his girlfriend, Nancy, somehow pointed me out to Lisa. And did you notice her or did you have to? Someone not at the time. I think she, she kind of hinted at that. And then I think okay. we started seeing each other 
at this cool place called the Nugget, which is a, a local watering hole on campus yeah. where actually Sublime would, would play, believe it or not. Oh. We never saw Sublime there, which is a, a, a sin that I probably regret. But the good news is that we started kind of flirting and hanging out a little bit. And that was probably about 1992. So um, lo and behold, um, I think she's cute. And quite frankly, because I was such a guy bouncing around, I mean, I would go on a date with an alpha fee and I would hook up with another alpha fee at the same freaking function, even though yeah. I'm this date with me. That's how stupid and dumb I was, right? We were all stupid back then. Yes. Thank you. So the good news. Oh, is, I have my stories. I'll get to them. We're going to, we're going to talk about this uh, uh, next week, whatever. But yeah. what I'm getting at is that uh, I was, um, you know, about, and about, nine, about 1993, for whatever reason, something clicked in me and I go, dude, I got to grow up a little bit and settle down. So I, um, uh, there was you know a, what that was. I don't know. It was external. It wasn't, it's something just kind of woke me up and I go, okay, it's time for me to get serious. And what I did quite stupidly was um, I, uh, my, my, my first two kind of, now there was actually two girls one was a very short period of time, 18 years old, right? Mm-hmm. Very immature, um, cute, but you know, just didn't last. And then that rebounded into another long relationship with a gal named Casey. And while I was with Casey, I started realizing that I think I want to actually settle down. I, I actually can be with somebody, but for whatever right. reason, Lisa was in the back of my mind because we'd actually flirted for that prior year. Well, one night at a, an event, and we've been flirting and I said, you should show up. And she goes, why should I? I go, I don't know, make it worth your while. So um, what I'm getting at is after a little bit of Yukon Jack and a little bit of, um, you know, inhibitions taken away, I, I kissed her at this okay. event. It was a pledge active, which means the pledges kick off a big old party. Right. And it's about the time you're graduating. And bottom line is, is that, that that started that process. And so it didn't work out very well. Uh, like my, my, my girlfriend, Casey, was not happy. I ended up apologizing profusely driving up to Los Gatos. She was from Los Gatos in Scotts Valley, actually, um, closer to your backyard. Mm-hmm. And um, trying, I, th- I thought that I was going to try to fix that. So what I ended up doing is actually go on a trip to Hawaii to work construction on the Ritz-Carlton. And the whole time, I think... I'm still in love with Casey, but in the back of my mind, I'm not. And when I come back, I didn't even want to sleep with her. You know, it was really weird. What did you feel when you kissed Lisa? Elation. It felt like it was. It you was, felt drawn to her. Oh, gosh. Yeah, she's beautiful, right? And you I, were I was, not feeling that with Casey. Chemistry, the chemistry was, well, no, I, 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 there was a sexual chemistry with Casey, but she wasn't the same as Lisa. Lisa was older, um, you know, more my age. She was a year younger than me. She just embodied more of that kind of overall kinds of thing. And, and, and the chemistry was, was huge. There was a lot of solid chemistry there. And I just felt elated and like young again. Right. So um, yeah, we started formally dating in fall of 1993. And uh, wait, did you and Casey break up? Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. And Lisa needed a date to her um, formal. She was dating a count from USC <laughs> And he was just being a little too, I'd say, possessive, right? Um, she kind of was at Long Beach. She was in LA. He always wanted to kind of deal with her. And so anyway, um, she was in between stuff. And I, I I was there and kind of, yeah, it all kind of worked out. We had when our did first... you know you wanted to marry her? I think probably within that year. I mean, I actually proposed to her fall 93. Uh, 
at a, at a, at a, at a um, ski trip with all of our friends in 94, we'd all graduated. We all went up to Mammoth together. I proposed to her on a gondola. So I, I knew I was going to marry her probably very quick into that, right? We'd already courted, right? So the funny thing is, is that even though when we first started dating in 11, in November of 1993 to when I proposed to her, it wasn't like I just only known her for a year. I'd known her for more than two years, right? Got to know her a little bit better here and there. And ultimately, you know, we got married in uh, in the fall of 95 and had got pregnant two months later. And Oh, uh, wow. You did? Yeah. Two yeah. months later. Wow. Two months later. So you have three kids. Tell me yeah. about your kids. Hunter is our oldest. He's uh, 27. Just turned 27. Actually, you're going to turn 27 July. Sarah's going to be um, my middle child. Sarah's going to be uh, 25. And then Ariana just turned 18. So I've got three amazing kids. Um, they're all close. Hunter's in town in Ventura. Mm-hmm. He came down. They all came down, obviously. Um uh, when we moved two years ago back from Rockland, but he's uh, an amazing bartender slash manager at a great local set of restaurants in Ventura, part of a larger hospitality group up in um, up in Santa Barbara. He's doing great, loves that. Um, and then um, Sarah, you know, got her degree at USF. Um, she's now working in the similar industry as Lisa in claims management. She's in LA. Uh, she's got a boyfriend named Daniel and, um, we get to see her all the time. She was just up a couple of weeks ago for Easter or not for Easter. Yeah. For Easter, she was up for Easter and we're going to see her again this weekend. And so we have this, you know, great ongoing relationship. We're going to all going to go hiking by the way on, well, Sarah's not going, but we're going to the Camino. So we're all talking about kind of getting ready for this trip, um, in June. And then Ariana is, um, our little theater queen dance queen she's uh, what you call the triple threat in 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 dance when you can dance and sing and act at the same time that's what she can do so she's been you know involved in ballet and dance for a long time she's um been in theater and and in choir at Ventura high school and she's actually in a play her last one coming up um this uh at the end at at the end of april so uh what's one thing that you love about each of your kids gosh I love Hunter's um, attitude and his spirit for life and his ability just to inspire people. He's electric, he's magnetic. I love Sarah's creativity and brilliance. And just when she was 12, 13, 14, she could have conversations with adults, right? Imagine having that old soul. She's an old soul Mm -hmm. that has, um, you know, these, she's got poetry. She's got, she's got a, there's a dark side too, right? There's like a Sylvia Plath kind of thing that would hopefully doesn't avoid, hopefully avoids the <laughs> Sylvia Plath went down a deep end. Right. But um, some of the stuff that she writes is just absolutely brilliant. And then Ari is just this, oh my gosh, she's not only super beautiful and talented, but she's also kind. Her, her um, spirit is so open and welcoming, like the heart, right. And just helping marginalized people. And she's lots of people in theater, you know, they can be the outcasts, right? You're probably familiar with that kind of, they're there, um, they're looking for some creative outlet. There's a lot of, you know, um, neurodivergent kids, right? And so she's right there and she's this like bright shining star and she's so so, so just um, personable. And going back to Lisa, the reason why I think we just have done so well is she's just this perfect compliment to me. She is so good at listening and absorbing um, just not only just conversation, but like people come up to her and 
they will unload their pain and she just absorbs it. So she is like this yin and yang, right? So I'm this outgoing, you know, talkative, listens a lot less, you know, she's like, no, the opposite, right? So we're this perfect kind of combination in terms of compliment, right? You know, it's interesting. And I just she completes me. <laughs> she completes you. There you go. Uh, what's interesting is I've known you for 15 years and I have never met her. We need to rectify that. I know I was literally because you've been that. up, you've met my wife. Yep. But, uh, when you were up, we had dinner at a keys. When you met my wife, uh, yep. she wasn't able to join you. So um, you were on a business trip. Yeah. Yeah. No, um, obviously when I'm down in San Jose, she's not going to come down and spend three hours in the car with me to do right. that. But um, exactly. yeah. And then of course I met your wife again, once again, because I was coming yes. down to discovery Bay, but that's kind of random. I mean, obviously, um, but I was thinking, I literally was thinking about that today. I was saying to myself, Oh my gosh, you've never met. And wouldn't that be fun? To get all of us together? We need to find a, a time when we can get together, but you gave me a good segue. Cool. As a, as a dad, how did you manage being in business across all of these jobs? One of the things you were talking about is there a theme in your jobs, but I want to also tie it to the growth period of how did you manage it being a dad? Yeah. Um, the sales takes you away. It does. I mean, you, you've actually brought up a really important point. And um, I, I will tell you that I, you know, we, we're supposed to live in the present in the moment, but I wasn't ready for, um, for Hunter. I was pretty not pretty young, right? I was 20, barely just turned 26, right? None of my friends had kids at that age. And I think that I was thrust in that world and I, I put too much of the pressure on Lisa. And when I work for um, ADP, I was gone all day long. So when I think about the last few years and how um, I've been close to my family, right? Always there, you know, we, we, we're all been at home, right? We've all been working for the last three years, um, you know, in close proximity to our folks because of the pandemic. But I, I remember, um, I mean, I just think about when we just moved up to, to Rockland, right? I took a manager role and my kids were formative, right? In, in, in elementary school, Ariana um, was just barely a couple of years old when we first moved up there. And I was gone from seven in the morning to like 5.15 at night every day. My wife had to drive my two kids across town. Literally, if you're familiar with Rockland, you, you, we lived in, in, in the North End by Lincoln, called Whitney Ranch and Lisa had to drive all the way to Sierra at the top of Roseville Parkway or, or yep. Sierra right on top of you know almost like the top most part of Rockland and it took her 25 minutes sometimes just to get there right and it's not that far so there's a lot of stuff that she had to do and I wasn't there and I couldn't be there right and then I'd come home that's when we had blackberries and that's why they called them crackberries and so <laughs> I, I look back and I think that in some ways that I, I didn't do enough, right? And so I, I, I regret that. And so I've spent the last few years just trying to get better and better about being more communicative, taking more. Well, on. what are you doing now to be more investing in your kids? What changed for you that you see yourself proactively doing? Yeah, um, it, it's definitely, um, you know, obviously with Ari, it's it's easy to, to spend time in the car with her and, and, and find out all those kinds of things like day-to-day -day kinds of things, you know, love interests, you know, schoolwork and um, other kind of extra extracurricular stuff. With regards to Hunter, um, it's been just hanging out with him, right? He lives in town. So we do a lot of hikes together. We go, we sometimes work out together. His friends actually really love me and we get along really, really well. So it's a really cool environment. And when, when we're together, 
we're doing a lot of food and cooking and stuff. And so as he's, you know, he's become a man now, right? And so what's really cool about not regretting this stuff is he's turned out to be a, a fantastic young man with a girl that he loves. They're going to get married. Eventually she's graduating from UCSD. But um, what I'm getting at is you get to have these adult conversations and you get to lift them up in their current environment in their psychological framework. Like in the past, it was more of structure and don't do this and do that. And just try to be that kind of, as God, you know, brought the Israelites out of, you know, Egypt, it was like, don't do this or do this, right? Very strict, strict kind of things. Then Jesus uncorked it and said, love your neighbor and love your neighbor, love your God and love your neighbor like yourself. And he made it a lot more open instead of a lot of like a cre uh, like a, like the Pharisees had all these rules and regulations. So where I am now is I'm not in that open relationship where it's a lot more dynamic and I'm hearing from them and I'm learning from them. And I'm, you know, in terms of, you know, there's a lot of, um, you know, trans kids, you know, that are Ariana's interacted with and a lot of other kinds of things where I've got to be more open to how do you, how are you sensitive and mindful of those kinds of interactions, right? And the kids love coming over here and they've had lots of fun celebrations. So this house is, is, is a safe house, right? People come over here, they get ready and they, they, they know that this place is a safe place, right? It's really cool. Okay, going back, um, what would you say? So you and I met in 2009, I think we discovered, it was right before my book, um, you and I met. Prodigal God. What was the prodigal son? There was a, a blogger that um, tales of a prodigal son or prodigal. Uh, uh, you know that it was a blogger. I don't remember. I know what you're talking about, but I can't remember who with the connection was. That was yeah. yes. And we were commenting on that. And then I followed yes. you on Missio Day on your on your website. Okay, Thank so you and I have always had this very long dialogue about God and the nature of reality and what we now see as consciousness. Mm -hmm. um, what were you like back then for our sure. listeners? Yeah. Me, what's different so, of you back then and now? Yeah. I've had a huge pivot from being like a confused in between Catholic and evangelical to diehard Catholic, diehard evangelical doing apologetics, teaching um, spiritual gift formation and heart and, and spending, you know, between 2001 and 2007, spending four days a week at Ventura Missionary Church, right? fully engaged in that process and doing a lot of the rote stuff, right? It, I mean, but not uh, all of it's rote. A lot of it is valuable. It, it was, but, but realize that you're, you know, wait, are you talking about like classes? Or are you talking about just like community yeah, groups? Just teaching, just being there, right? Just, okay. um, I mean, spending four days a week at, at church is a lot, right? You have worship, you got after oh, yeah. hours, you got That's all kinds of stuff. And so to me, one of the things that came up in a, in a sermon was like, is there's a difference between busyness and being busy right mm -hmm. and like so but but what i did get it was a formative i really dove into scripture right I, i've got a lot of knowledge that i studied eschatology you know soteriology a lot about church leadership soteriology is the uh, study of sin right uh mm -hmm. eschatology is the study of the last times right when we talk about um, church polity is like, how should a church be governed? And should women be able to be in leadership, right? These things came up a lot. And I was defending a pretty um, reformed way of looking at it. Went to John Piper, love John okay, Piper. Okay, let's take a quick tangent down this one. Because mm -hmm. you and I have talked about John 
along. So for those who don't know, John Piper is a an evangelical pastor. He's out of what, Illinois? No, he was out of Minneapolis, actually. Minneapolis, that's right. I don't know if he's I don't know if he's preaching still anymore. But he, uh, he may have retired, but yeah. during that time for you and I, John Piper was a massive voice. Uh, oh, gosh, yeah. He was sort of the counterpoint to Rob Bell. You, that's, you and I really were engaged in that dialogue a lot, especially around like the emerging church. Did you ever get into the emerging church? No, I, I rebelled against it. I was. Oh, actually, you did. That's, so what was your perspective back then? Because I just so for the listeners know, I was we'll dive into this deep next episode. Yeah, Dan Kimball, very much all the guys. It. Yeah. And Rich, you were you. And that's, I think, what attracted our conversation is that we were counterpoints to each other, but we yeah. were both willing to kind of listen to each other. Like there was no judgment. It was how do we like we kind of want the same thing, which is just the truth. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I think what was interesting is is that I tried to provide a lot of answers and a lot of the emerging church was asking a lot of questions. So, you know, Brian McLaren, you know, was asking a lot of questions, but it was sometimes- at yeah, Brian may be a better counterpoint to John Piper. That's probably a better one. Fair enough. I think you're right because they, they were both older, right? And, mm-hmm. and Bell came on board more recently. You know who's the counter to Rob Bell? Mark Driscoll. Yes, yes, exactly. And Mars Hill. Yeah. Both Mars Hills. That's what's crazy. Yes. Think about that from a crazy construct. You know, Tr- yeah. Tr- Driscoll is a reformed uh, Mars Hill. And, and the whole point of Rob Bell's Mars Hill is on the Oropagus, where Paul is talking to the Athenians about, and he's and he's being very, um, I wouldn't say synchristic, but he's being very contextual. He's actually speaking to them in their own language. He's got, he's talking to the, you know, a, a, a statue to an unknown God, and he's quoting one of their own one of their own poets, right? So Paul was doing a great job assimilating to the culture. And I think that's what Rob Bell was trying to yes. highlight. Going back to all this, I think. Um, but you, but I call out Piper because he was a very deep influence. Why? Um, I just loved his passion. I think he was very honest and, 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 and he felt very humble too. Unlike like John MacArthur, who was more cocky and more self-assured and Mark Driscoll, who actually was next to John Piper up at a Desiring God conference, you could just see the difference in two. Piper was humble and says, I couldn't go to um, you know strip clubs and to bars and to carouse with people where Driscoll was trying to be that kind of voice. And he's like, I, 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 couldn't, I couldn't handle that temptation. I don't know when things started changing for me because I was even against N.T. Wright for a while because of N.T. Wright's desi- um, understanding of how salvation is you know top down he's saying salvation is this, this way is by community and the jewish framework salvation was a was a communal event we talked about this before yes. whereas you know in in a western kind of reformed god is doing individual kinds of salvation Very individual yeah and the idea of justification it was a totally different kind of construct to nt right than it is to the reform guys and how you're justified in the mind and eye of god is like the reforms looked at as a courtroom whereas Jesus is your advocate and God is the judge and you're pardoned, right? You, you are sinful, you are a sinner, but Jesus justifies you one point in time when you come to that saving kind of place. And I think N.T. Wright was saying it's a lot more dynamic than that. Anyway, I don't know where I started losing my um, desire to be that rigid kind. I mean, I used to have all the inerrancy stuff down, right? And Bible and, you know, um, you know, you were always my best sounding board. 
multiple texts. What listeners will find out next week and over time is I'm the curious one and you are such a great counterbalance to me because you bring so much uh, really great thought process that because you have a really very deep mind. You know a lot of ideas and a lot of history. So it's a great framework to say, how does this idea match up? And you get, well, Aquinas was rec- was wrestling with that and or St. Augustine. And you have that background. Um, and that must have been very valuable because you know a lot of history. Like you almost have a photographic memory when it comes to biblical history. I used to, I, I'd call it a partially photographic. There are things that could come to my mind, which is running yeah. kind of crazy, but it's not consistent. So it's kind of let me down sometimes. Yeah, the older we get. Yeah, exactly. So, so how did you get to to today? How did you get to where you are now? I'm wondering if it had something to do with the kinds of conversations. You and I stopped going to church. I basically stopped going to church about six, seven years ago. And you, do you go to church much anymore? No, very similar. So what ended up happening was um, there was some really bad gossip and a lot of leadership at our church um, bailed and there was some caustic stuff up in the Rockland area. And so Lisa decided um, as we were wrapping up our tenure in Rockland, call it 2014, 2015, um, Lisa kind of got out of that. I continued to want to find a church body. In fact, ended up going to a small incarnational um, Anglican church with my good friend, Jeff. And we would go on and off. And so I spent between um, 20, let's say 16 and 20, um, 20, when we, when we finally came back down, mm-hmm. started doing that. Um, I think along the way, something, I don't know when it happened, but um, when I started reading more Pete Enns, Pete Enns, who, who is Biologos, right? And he wrote the book called um, Sin of Certainty and um, a lot of other stuff. I, I started listening to him more because he was asking really important questions and questions that really smart people were asking. Rachel held held Adams too, right? She Evans, was great. Yeah. yeah. Rachel Evans. She was very um curious and and she seemed to be, you know, she was definitely on the left side of things, but she just seemed so reasonable. And so I think I started appreciating them more and just realizing that we don't have all the answers. Like there's so many different things. And even talking about, I mean, and it started with the eschatology, right? Here's one way of looking at it. I look at that. I see there's lots of holes. It can't be that simple. Then I start looking at evolution and, you know, there's a guy on Rachel held Evans that talks about why do whales have olfactory genes, right? Or talking about, you know, what we call um, evolutionary creationism, which is what CS Lewis believed like God, created the world ex nihilo, but then he let nature kind of do its thing. And I thought we came up with a lot of really solid examples about why that's true. And, you know, ultimately um, in these conversations with you, you start to realize that God is bigger than all of this, that he doesn't, he can't be put into boxes and that um, there's been so much pain and suffering and devastation in the church that the there's something missing, right? Something is missing and broken there. There's got to be a better way to connect to the truth than some of these old broken ways. And you can't, you can't oversee, you know, the, the abuse that's happened in the Catholic church. And then you even see the Southern Baptist convention, lots of turmoil, right? Lots of abuse. Did so, you feel the Catholic abuse when it came out? I, I, I didn't. Uh, there was definitely a, a priest that, um, not that, personally, but just, did you there was feel a guy, it, like there, this there is was a, the church? Yeah. 
So, I mean, I, I didn't feel it. Um, all this stuff kind of came up after the fact, you know, as yeah. I was already into evangelicalism, but there was one pastor at, uh, at our church in Ventura that this guy was bad news. He actually um, looked at the altar boy on up on the altar and just with just not good looks. And this guy ended up absconding with money actually. So he was a bad dude. He, he was bad in many different ways. And so the sad thing is, is that um, when you've got that much power, that power can be um, pushed and diverted. And you could just see that, that abuse and that kind of old hierarchical stuff. And even, unfortunately, you can go back to, you know, both Benedict and I think John Paul II were fully aware of a lot of the stuff that was happening. It was just getting shuffled out of the rug. So, yeah. You asked me a question uh, before we talked about this. In looking back in all of your jobs, you said, is there a theme in those jobs? How would you answer that question? Yeah. So what's interesting You've been in sales your entire life. Yeah. And you didn't even plan on it. No. What's the theme of that entire journey? You know, the theme for me, I think is helping a customer through a process that helps open their eyes up and you get to enjoy a win-win scenario. I saw this a lot at ADP um, because you would persuade somebody to go from an in-house processing to using an automated solution, or you'd try to take out the competition. But along the way, um, what I found was it's always been a SaaS model, right? Even back in the early days with ADP, it was a, a subscription model, right? So I've always done the SaaS, but I think I, I probably saw the most fun uh, at LinkedIn where you've got a mindset, let's say it's a really large organization that's spending $2 million on outside right. agencies like headhunters to fill their roles and you help persuade them through piloting and proof of concept pilots that you can actually for three hundred thousand dollars take that two million and spend and drop it to a million save a million dollars and invest three hundred thousand right mm -hmm. and then also build your brand at the same time and then when i sold elevate which was an employee advocacy program it was like persuading your employees to share content on behalf of the organization, generating lots of great, great outcomes, jobs and sales and, and marketing wins and eyeballs. So moving them through a process where the eyes light up and then getting people to actually be case studies, right? I mean, I still keep in touch with a gal that I work with at ADP. Not only did she implement our HR system at a couple of different organizations, but I helped her implement it at a, another organization that was stalled, helped her move there and get options and enjoy. A, I, I was actually a, a matchmaker. I actually helped her move from one organization where she was driving an hour and 20 minutes each way mm -hmm. into the valley to a closer deal where she got to know and love and, and actually continue to, to dominate her, her, her system. So those are the great stories that I love and reflect on. What did you learn by doing sales for 25 years? Like, what's that? What's the thing that you, so, because here, you and I are now, mm -hmm. what, what is, what's the next chapter of your journey like, look like? What, what's important to you? Because I think the thing that I've learned is I'm now at a point where I need things to be meaningful or they're just not worth my time. Mm. What does that look like for you going forward? I mean, obviously we're doing this podcast as sort of a creative experiment. Yeah. Um, and we're finding that we absolutely love it because it's what we've been doing for 15 years. But what else is kind of in your path? What What are you dreaming about right now? Yeah. Well, honestly, well, what are you doing? First, what are you doing in your current role? What Who do you work for right now? Yeah. Current role is um, 
also involved in the talent space, right? So at LinkedIn, it was talent, right? Talent acquisition, if you would, and HR. At ADP, it was also talent, right? And workforce management, right? So right. going back to what's the common theme, it's human capital management, right? It's workforce management mm-hmm. and how technology can make the world a better place. So in our particular case, um, it's involving coaching. So I, I chose a job going into the new year that said, I can sell a lot of different stuff. I can sell widgets, I can sell software, I can sell whatever I want, but I, I'm interested in selling something that actually is going to change people's lives for the better, mm-hmm. right? Through coaching. So everybody knows why executives at organizations have um, coaches. They have executive coaches. The head of C, uh, the, the the Ford CEO, Amazon CEO, all these folks have a lot of money to spend on people that are their sounding boards. They they posit ideas off. They help them with behavioral changes, with communication. And what we're trying to do is democratize that and bring it down to your first time manager or to uh, people in a diversity inclusion program, or maybe even a manager who actually has a high potential. You want to ramp them through a process. So why I was excited about it is we're in an environment where the culturally speaking, you know, things are, are broken. There's a lot of attrition, a lot of people who are hurting, and this is an amazing way to provide a resource for these folks to help them become better communicators, to become uh, more resilient at work, to help them be more mindful about things, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's what I love about it. And again, it's about education, right? It's like you, you move them through a process, you tell them how it could work, and then the eyes light up as they're getting anecdotal evidence of, of real behavioral change. It's exciting. At the same time, when I thought about it is, um, you know, this could be something if I make enough connections and I get involved in the coaching world enough and leadership and development, I could end up being a coach of my own in four or five or six years. And I'll always have a gig job. Right. So think about that for a minute. Right. So when I made that move, I always felt in the back of my mind, this could be something with my MBA, with my interaction with people and the stories that I've understood. How could I be a better potential coach myself? Does that inspire you? I would say, yeah, it does. Um, I'm inspired by um, watching that light bulb go on, people seeing, you know, iterative changes get better. It's not too different from atomic habits. It's not too different from intermittent fasting. It's not too different from ice baths, right? These things are all kind of blend together, Jonathan, because they show little small things can make big differences down the road, right? And so when you think about it, it could be meditation, it could be, you know, intermittent fasting, it could be exercise, it could be coaching. Uh, that That's kind of a nice way to kind of wrap it all up in a nice with a nice little cherry on top right now, if you ask me. Well, yeah, that's, uh, so summarize that in terms of your philosophy, because you, you do, you, you know, we started with, you are interested in biohacking, you are interested in consciousness, you are interested in your career, because you want to be a good human being and take care of your responsibilities. But what is, what would you say is kind of an encapsulating philosophy? What are you trying to do? Well, I mean, my LinkedIn summary kind of says it, it says, you know, interacting with people and humans and technology to try to make the world a better place, you know? I Um, love it. Right. So um, how can we leverage the tools at our disposal to try to make the world a better place? You know? Thank you, brother. This has been, you know, what's funny is we've talked for 15 years and I don't know if we've ever had a conversation like this. And I feel like I got a lot of gaps filled in. So I appreciate it. So to our listeners, we really appreciate you. 
Thank you for taking the time to uh, stay the course with us. Please feel free to comment and subscribe if you can. And let your friends know if anything you share out is, is warm and welcome. We appreciate it. So much love, everyone. Rich, you want to say goodbye? Cheers, everybody. Have a great weekend. God bless. All right.